This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. I will intro us and then we'll go for it. Afim, we good? Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. We are happy you are here. Um, And you know who I'm happy is not here? Sarah Cliff and Matthew Iglesias, because screw them and their vacations and their reporting trips. What's better is I have Darlind and Libby Nelson of Vox.com here. Hello, how are you? Hi, Ezra. I'm totally <laughs> shitty. I just got my wisdom teeth out and it is the worst. Uh, and it feels weird to complain about something that most people had when they were in high school because the time since they got their wisdom teeth out has dulled their memory of the pain. And so they're not particularly sympathetic to me. But I want everybody to know I'm in extreme discomfort, but have shown up here anyway because that is how committed I am to the weeds. Ezra is an enormous trooper. And also, if you send us any complaints about this podcast, we will come to your door and fight you because you're trying to kick a man while he's down. Exactly. Um, we're, this is a painkiller-induced combative episode of the weeds, which brings us to our topics today. We're going to talk a bit about Donald Trump's second tax plan. He released a tax plan over last week that superseded his old tax plan for reasons he did not explain. But it has some interesting features, including a faint towards the um, Ivanka Trumpism that proved so popular at the convention. We're going to talk a bit about legitimacy and the election. Um, It's something that Trump has been questioning. He's been talking about the way the election will be rigged. Uh, But it's also something that came up before during the primary. I think it's a topic worth thinking more seriously about when a lot of people are actually just kind of trying to point and laugh. And finally, we have a white paper of the week. I am stoked for the white paper of the week. It is by Stephen Levitt of Freakonomics fame. And unlike a lot of white papers that are of absolutely no relevance to your life. It is just of relevance to your hobby about knowing about politics. This white paper, I shit you not, it may change your life. That said, let's talk a little bit about Trump's tax plan. Donald Trump had a tax plan before. That tax plan was extraordinarily expensive. But what was interesting about it was that it was 180 degrees opposite from what he said it was. That before he released it, he had gone on 60 Minutes. He'd said, look, he didn't agree with most Republicans. He thought it was time to raise taxes on the rich. He said his tax plan would cost him a fortune. Then as often happens with Donald Trump's policy plans, it came out and that was not what it did. So he's now brought out another tax plan that actually isn't that different from the first. The the main thing I think that is worth knowing about it is he has moved his tax brackets, his individual income tax brackets down a bit. Um, I I should have written down these numbers, but I believe it's 33, 25 and 10. Uh, Mm -hmm. But if somebody wouldn't mind checking on their phone so that I could say that again, if I'm wrong, that'd be great. But what's interesting about those numbers is that he's what he's done is he's taken the numbers from the Republican House budget. So he's basically said that he's bringing his tax plan into alignment in broad strokes, if not in specific details, with what House Republicans are already proposing and that he's going to work with them on the uh, on the specifics. So Libby gives me a thumbs up. I got those numbers right. That's how in the weeds I am. Um, but but so I want to focus on two things here. One is that I think this says a lot about interesting dynamics between Trump and House Republicans and just sort of Republican tax policy in general. But I want to turn it over to Libby for a minute because the actually new part of the tax plan relates to child care. And very much relates to something Ivanka Trump was talking about at the convention. And my understanding of the background here is that it got such a good response that it made it into the plan. But but why don't right. you jump in? Yeah. So to talk about this, we have to go back to the night when Ivanka spoke uh, at the Republican National Convention. And Ivanka Trump is someone who is really fascinating in her own right and fascinating in terms of the role she's playing in this campaign. But she got up and gave a speech that sounded completely different from anything else. I was um, on the floor for her speech. It sounded completely different than anything else we had heard from really any speaker over the entire uh, four-day event and also really from most speakers at any Republican convention period because a lot of it was a very, at least in the policy section, like a very Democratic light type speech. Um, It was all about equal pay for equal work, um, all of these women's issues that Ivanka Trump has sort of made her issues outside of the campaign and one of the things she talked about was affordable child care. And what that has seems to have manifested itself into is a provision in this tax plan that would make child care uh, fully deductible, but not necessarily a refundable credit. Um, so that is – spend a moment on the difference between that because it's one of these differences in policy that is like the 
biggest fights are about it and nobody knows what it means. Right. And this is, yeah, this is the really, I mean, first of all, this is mostly the entire policy. This is not a white paper. This is like one line in his speech. Yes. Plus a few lines that were not particularly more clarifying um, released by his can, campaign. Can I note something? He does promise that, that there will be more details forthcoming for those of you who, uh, you know, lie awake at night wondering when Donald Trump mm-hmm. is going to put some, you know, white papers behind his I speeches. am one of those people, though. And so <laughs> the day, uh, two days after the speech, I went on the internet to DonaldJTrump.com. Website. Yes, the positions yes, page, which I wanted to doesn't even have a space for economic policy. Forget the childcare policy. That campaign is so unprofessional. It is so amateurish that after they give a major speech announcing their economic plan, they don't even put the actual plan on the website. Uh, yeah, this does I allow agree. me to grind one of my axes, though, which is that there are and have been uh, very detailed plans about how Donald Trump is going to change immigration policy and how he is going to make Mexico pay for the wall, which is one of those things that everyone thought was a ridiculous boast uh-huh. that he then put out an actual white paper on, um, which makes me believe, as do some other things I'm seeing from the campaign, that immigration is the one issue where he really has attracted this issue network of people who are going to make sure that if elected, he's going to do some of the things he actually said he would do. Immigration is, in fact, two of the six issues. Um, (laughs) Mexico will pay for the wall is an issue in and of itself. And then immigration is an issue separate from that. Um, The other ones, I think, are U.S.-China trade policy, healthcare. Um, veterans? I'm forgetting veterans. Veterans. I'm forgetting one. Uh, but it, Making it is America great. Probably. <laughs> it is not comprehensive is what I would say. And so there is not, you know, a lot of this is guesswork. And then you go to Clinton's and it's like the exact opposite. It's like here's 27 different issues and all of them right. have 47 page white papers. Yep. Um, so but working from this one line and this like additional paragraph or so, basically what he wants is for taxpayers to be able to deduct from their tax liability, the amount of money they're spending on child care. So the way this child care tax deduction would work is it reduces your taxable income um, by the amount of money you're spending on child care, essentially acknowledging that that is not really essentially money that is part of your income. So let me just make sure I understand this. So like, let's say I make Mm $50,000 and I'm spending $3,000 on child care a year. Mm -hmm. What happens then is that I am basically paying taxes on $47,000 of income. Right, exactly. Um, Like many of the other things you can deduct off of your taxes. Right. the big difference here is some of some things are tax credits, which means if you don't have tax liability or if you're going below zero, you are able to get some of that money back. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not. This is just a tax deduction. So if you are making too little money to have to pay federal income taxes, which is a lot of people, uh, this plan seventy percent. In fact, I don't. Has anyone updated that number? Is it? Still yeah, maybe, maybe a little different now. Okay, I was hedging my bets, but I'm, I'm glad we're all going with the throwback. 2012 reference. Anyway, for those 47% of people um, who may be paying state and local taxes or payroll taxes but are not paying federal taxes, this really does nothing for them because they're not able to get anything back in the way that you can with some of the bigger, more signature uh, tax credits like the EITC. Dylan had told me, um, and I don't know where he got this, Dylan Matthews at Vox, that there was ambiguity as to whether or not you could duck this off of payroll taxes, which would make it a little bit more progressive if so. So this was where sort of the campaign's odd clarification came in, which implied that it could be deducted from payroll taxes. It Mm -hmm. did not give a lot of specifics about how that might work. Um, I'm sure you were were stunned. And that would be fairly unusual in terms of how – that's not how the EITC works. That's not how other major child-related tax credits work. Help me – Put this in context, because Mm -hmm. there was a lot of, oh, the Donald Trump pivot is finally happening. And then Mm -hmm. like 20 minutes later, he (laughs) joked about Second Amendment enthusiasts shooting Hillary Clinton or a Supreme Court judge. But and so then the pivot ended. (laughs) But in the moment of this sort of Ivanka Trump pivot, what I wanted to sort of get a better sense of is I remember I think it's two budgets ago. Barack Obama, President Obama, came out with a pretty big child care subsidy mm-hmm. program. I don't remember the specifics, but I remember that two or three State of the Unions or budgets ago, like that was a big part of that year's agenda. Mm-hmm. And Hillary Clinton has come out with a significant child care plan. So line these up for me a little bit. Like how do how do they differ? The, the big difference between the Trump plan and the Obama and, and Clinton plans is they are much more targeted toward lower income families um, through various mechanisms of doing that. But they all sort of are on this continuum of acknowledging that child care, the talking point is that child care in some states is more expensive than college. It has really become a extreme expense in the way that healthcare and other things have been where it seems like the government is like going to step in and do something about it. 
the interesting thing about these plans is that they seem popular. They just sort of never go anywhere. Congress has had no interest in them whatsoever. Um, with a Republican Congress, that's not necessarily surprising. When there was a Democratic Congress, this was not really on the agenda. And so there there are some differences among them, but sort of this core idea of there needs to be something delivered through the tax system, delivered through a subsidy to states that helps sort of share these costs off of the families alone. The most interesting thing about Trump's plan is that idea now seems to really be making its way into a Republican campaign as well, um, which is not to say that there weren't people on the right who were thinking about this or writing about it, but that a man who has six issue positions on his website and like maybe this is the seventh, uh, that is, I think, a really big change. What you just said about, you know, there had been people on the right thinking about and writing about this is what, you know, strikes me as really fascinating because I think I think a lot of people misunderstand the phrase reform conservatism because it's kind of associated with wonks in D.C. writing white papers. And, you know, they haven't gotten a lot of traction in Congress. They certainly, you know, their tone couldn't be more different from the populism that Trump has adopted in his mm-hmm. campaign. But the reform conservatism of Ross Douthat and Raihan Salam and Yuval Levin really does have a lot of focus on supporting middle-class families. And there is a lot of attention paid toward what can the federal government do to support childcare and that kind of thing in a way that is consistent with conservatism. And there are lots of ways in which you can imagine a Trump campaign that really adopts those kind of ideas, right? That like that uses Ivanka as an avatar of the way to reach out to these middle class voters. And that hasn't obviously been what they've done because that implies a level of strategy that we haven't seen from the Trump campaign at any point. But I think that one of the things that's been interesting for me in watching this movement develop is that it's been a proof of concept of a lot of the things politically that reform conservatives were saying, that there is a way to reach out to these less politically affected voters who could respond very well to Republican policies and that it's just happening in a way that absolutely none of them particularly think is you know, good for the Republican Party or the Republic. So one thing I think is interesting about that is I think there's a distinction to be drawn. I think you're broadly right, but I think there's a, an interesting distinction to be drawn about the motivation of, I'm going to call it Ivanka Trumpism right, yeah, and reform I, conservatism. I, I think I agree with you, but I want you to say it first. <laughs> I like this. Like that, now, now we're on the same side. I, I, I don't I, want to fuck I, it up by saying the wrong thing. I already agree with you, Ezra. Just be careful. So, um, I always took a lot of the sort of reform conservatives as having a very natalist policy agenda, mm-hmm. right? They were really committed to the idea that the family is a core institution of American life, um, particularly in the modern era where you have two two working parent households and, and all these other forces, you know, buffeting it. Uh, it was receiving insufficient support and you were seeing that the problems of that show up in declining uh, rates of marriage and declining rates of childbirth and all these other things. And so that they had come up with a bunch of policies, including things like larger refundable child tax credits, not just child care, but child tax mm-hmm. credits, which work even if you don't go to work, um, in order to move policy to incentivize the creation of larger families, although not necessarily larger it did not, I think, always have an embedded preference for the woman to be working. I'm not saying they didn't want women to work. I'm just saying that that wasn't what the policy was. Ivanka Trumpism, which predates Trumpism, like Ivanka Trump has kind of been a quasi-political public intellectual figure. She has it's kind of like a lifestyle brand that mm-hmm. is, you know, and her her lifestyle brand is educated working mothers. And how do you make that easier? And what they've got here is a policy that um, is very specific, I think, uh, in terms of targeting that life space, right? So it doesn't really do anything for a family where the mother doesn't work or for that matter, father doesn't work, um, but wants to have more children. And it doesn't do much for a poor family at all, Mm -hmm. but it does a lot for a family where maybe they make – $86,000 $86,000 a year and they live in an urban center and both parents work and childcare is super expensive. And like, you know, the woman wants to climb the ranks at, you know, the advertising firm or the whatever, the accounting firm, whatever it might be. But childcare is just really expensive. And this like is like a little bit of like a push to that kind of family. And I just think that difference is kind of interesting. Yeah, I think we really can't. I, I agree with you, Dara, about sort of how this at least nods to things that reform conservatives like, and maybe they will find something in this that they can work with and that makes them feel a little bit better about Trump. But that was not the motivation. The motivation of this is Ivanka Trump is extremely influential within her father's campaign and she is sort of using this to push the issues that she cares about. I mean, 
I don't think four years ago, given the sort of intra economist, intra sort of intellectual dis- disputes over fair pay, the idea that equal pay for equal work, that line would like get a roaring roar of applause at a Republican right. convention was not necessarily something that was foreseen. The way that Ivanka Trump has sort of like cannibalized her father's campaign from the inside on some of these issues. <laughs> that like, is what's such a bug? vivid. What's like the bug that crawls into the other bug and like takes it over? Do you know what I'm talking about? Or the cocoon? Okay, you I, do know, I do know what you're talking about. The look of absolute horror on your face, Tara, is like something that I wish I Nightmares did. brought to you by the weeds. I do know what you're talking about. It is a f- total nightmare <laughs> to look at this thing on the internet. Yeah, I don't want to look I it just, up, so I'm just going to I'm just that impressed that you got this uh, – that, like this metaphor is the one you reached for. for can, we, can we make like, it like Pacific uh, Rim instead? Of like <laughs> you know, the humans controlling ginormous robots, where the ginormous robot is the Trump campaign. But yes, um, you're, I think that's a very. I, I think that is apt in some ways. Although one thing about it that is weird is like mm-hmm. we believe right the, mm-hmm. the way this has been kind of like talked about is she didn't take it over. The plan isn't coherently mm-hmm. this kind of plan. It is a um, – she grafted this onto it. Yes, it's like true. all these things that are just like standard issue like Republican budget fair, you know, we'll get rid of the estate tax mm-hmm. entirely. And, and something to note, by the way, is that this plan is trillions and trillions of dollars expensive. It is ungodly expensive. It's much more expensive than the George W. Bush tax cuts. You would – assuming you're not going to pay for it with more tax increases and if you were, what was the point of doing the plan? If you're not going to pay for that, we're going to pay for it with spending cuts. And mm-hmm. because Donald Trump is does not want to cut all military spending everywhere, <laughs> you're going to pay for it with cuts to programs that end up, you know, helping low income and, and poor women. We have a number of child care, et cetera, subsidies in the budget already. And I think that any reasonable read of the other side of this plan would, uh, even though like nobody knows what that would be, would very much move this in a more regressive direction. But she was not able to get her dad's campaign either in his speech or in this plan to fully reflect like in a like an Ivanka Trumpism mm-hmm. she was able to get like a piece of Ivanka Trumpism glued on right so here's right and this is this... sort of the, the problem with running a lifestyle brand as policy which is when you're <laughs> when you know when, when you're running a lifestyle brand you're looking at a much narrower slice mm-hmm. interestingly a slice of the electorate that for Donald Trump is very crucial and if the Trump yeah. campaign were a little more apt would really be using her and the way that she appeals to highly educated married women with children, which is a group that often has voted Republican, unlike many other highly educated groups. They're not apt enough to do that. So, yeah, the, this is what I think is particularly interesting is that, you know, you can one of the ways that you could put this distinction is Ivanka Trump's core audience and her, you know, the people who would be helped by this proposal are not Trump voters, right? Whereas in a more traditional natalist context, those a plan like that would actually be doing much more to help the people who are supporting Donald Trump right now. And the reason that I think that this is particularly interesting in understanding Ivanka even more than Donald Trump is – There's a joke going around the Vox newsroom that I've heard among a lot of political observers that Ivanka Trump is going to be the Marine Le Pen of Trumpism, right? That just like – We're not very funny is the main thing I think you can take away from that. Yeah. No, I mean by joke I mean (laughs) it's one of those things we throw out so that if it happens we can say I told you so and if it doesn't happen we can say we were just joking. But Um, who is Marine Le Pen? Right. So so just like in France, Jean-Marie Le Pen of the Front National, which I'm sure Libby can – can correct my pronunciation. You're of, fine. Created an insurgent movement of the far right, doing many of the things Trump is doing, going hard after ethnic minorities, hard after immigrants, talking a lot about the need to restore French greatness. Uh, and in a way that turned a lot of people on and turned a lot of people off. And his daughter, Marine, who actually kicked him out of the party, more or less, uh, and is now leading the party to unprecedented electoral success, has found that success by toning down some of the angrier parts of the message. It's still an anti-immigrant party, but it's not a nativist party in the same way. It's not a xenophobic party. And instead, there's some of the more natalist, a positive agenda as well as a negative agenda that has been a very natural extension of that coalition that does help the people who were already turned on by the xenophobic policies of Jean-Marie Le Pen. But also has the people who were turned off by that negative tone, but who still feel that something needs to be done to help people who were falling behind. And if you think about, you know, Ivanka is is a much sunnier figure than Donald Trump. She does have an ability to appeal to a broader swath of people. But if she's interested in maintaining this lifestyle brand of 
educated working women and emphasizing equal pay for equal work and creating a child care deduction that's going to help, as Ezra said, households making $96,000 a year in urban areas, that's not as natural an extension of the Donald Trump brand as the jean Marie Le Pen extension is. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. But it's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. I think Ivanka Trump would be a tremendously successful politician. I think her father has probably ruined any future that she might have in politics for her because they're not really – they're not on the same page. She, they're, they're sort of grafting. She's sort of deciding to ignore the parts of his campaign that she either doesn't agree with or doesn't want to talk about in public because it's bad for her brand. And it's just sort of grafting on the sort of like, quote, unquote, women who work, which is her tagline uh, ideas. I think it is 100 percent clear <laughs> that if Donald Trump were not running for president, Ivanka Trump would be voting for Hillary Clinton. Agree. Like I think if you <laughs> think look at her – like her public-facing persona, her agenda, like it is the – Hillary Clinton thing. I mean, it is like the whole brand. So I think one reason that she'll have trouble being a um, successful politician mm-hmm. is that she's probably a Democrat. Yes. Um, but now yes. Her, and, and yes, that, that is what I was trying her, to get at. Her yeah. family name is very associated <laughs> with Republicans. But, but speaking of Republicans, I do think something else was interesting about this tax plan. And I think this tax plan is the answer to the question of why does Paul Ryan keep endorsing Donald Trump? There has been somewhat endless speculation in Washington, D.C. Ryan has tried to do this kind of sort of complicated thing that Mitch McConnell, for instance, really hasn't gotten himself tied up in not doing, mm-hmm. where Ryan is showing in every way he can, right? Like, it, you know, in the way of like a teenager sullenly trudging to the car before family vacation, that he doesn't like this. There's it, so much vivid imagery on this podcast yeah, today. In defense of Paul Ryan, I think it's largely that Mitch McConnell doesn't feel the need to speak for the Republican Party in the same way, right? Like Mitch McConnell was not literally the only man who could be elected Speaker of the House. There's this idea that Paul Ryan is the one person holding the Republican coalition but, together. But Ryan has been doing this thing for a while where instead of just saying – like you could do the Ryan's previous thing. You could you could say, I endorse Donald Trump. Don't always love what he says, but he's better than Hillary Clinton. But Ryan makes a point um, every time Trump says something like really off the wall or every time Trump says something really, really, really off the wall of coming out and saying, that's textbook racism. That's not who we are as a country. The cons are a great American family full of here, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And so he holds the endorsement of Trump while continuously projecting that he knows like so many other people do, that this guy's unqualified, temperamentally unfit, doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, and so there's been this discussion in 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 Washington. Like, why doesn't he just pull his endorsement? Why why does he keep doing this? Why does he keep offering up his reputational capital? Trump initially wouldn't endorse him for his congressional reelection. Uh, he actually echoed Ryan in saying, "I'm not quite there yet," uh, which is what Ryan said about Trump before endorsing him. Which like the the sort of. Uh, <laughs> The, the immaturity of it and like petulance of Trump in doing that, of just like creating two days of bad storyline for no reason is amazing to me. But I mean, I think that we know that this is who Trump is. Right? Yeah, he totally. says in his books that like if you screw him, he will screw you 10 times yep. worse. But so basically, I think that the reason Brian like you see here what's really going on. Donald Trump will fundamentally uh, sign some version of the Paul Ryan budget into law if he's president and Hillary Clinton won't. Mm-hmm. And that for 
Paul Ryan is the core most important reason he is in politics. And he might know that Trump is really, really unfit, but he does care about these ideas. He does believe these ideas would lead to a better country. Like he's committed to his own agenda. He's, he's sincere and authentic in that. And as much as he knows all the problems with Trump, like the core thing that unites them is that their main differences are temperamental. They're not – their main differences are not policy. It's not that they don't have policy differences. Paul Ryan is much lighter on immigration than, than Trump is, for instance. But they agree on some of the big things and Ryan knows it and, you know, like ultimately that is the core – that is the bedrock of his politics. The other stuff is, you know, political uh, appearance and style and and, and affect. I'm really not sure that that is true. I think that the the conclusion of that theory is that if Paul Ryan were just a backbench member of the House or if he were a first-term member of the Senate like Ted Cruz, that he would, unlike Ted Cruz, be saying exactly the same things he is saying today. And I don't know that we can necessarily say that. I think the fact that Paul Ryan is not only Speaker of the House but, you know, again, was elected Speaker of the House despite – you know, his resistance for a solid week solely because there weren't other people who had the respect of both the conservative and establishment wings of the party is very relevant here. I think Ryan's fairly young. He has not yet launched a run for president himself. It's something that he's, you know, that if he doesn't want, he's certainly thinking on that level. He's proposing, you know, big, ambitious policy agendas that he's trying to present as the vision for the Republican Party moving forward. But he's in this awkward position where he has to be both the president and the and the future of the Republican Party. Ted Cruz is making a bet that he can be the future of the party, or at least the near-term future after Trump is defeated. Ryan doesn't have that luxury. He has to represent the party as it is now in addition to what it could be. And I think that what we're seeing right now is him making sure that he, you know, doing what he thinks is going to preserve his reputational capital by saying all of these things about, you know, this isn't who we are as a country that he can then point to after Trump's loss. But he may not feel that he politically has the ability to write off someone who much of his caucus has really thrown in with. That's a problem for him. If weeds are Matt Iglesias were here. He would say that the words has to are doing a lot of work in that. He doesn't have to do any. Like, I think this is like one of the hard things about evaluating politicians because we have a tendency to take political incentives as a kind of cement reality. I, I think you're right about what is the optimal political strategy for Paul Warren. Uh, I think that this leaves the maximum number of options open, creates the least dissension in his conference. But he also knows this is bad for the country. Like he is looking at this guy and Paul Ryan, I am 100 percent sure, like 100 percent sure, does not think Donald Trump should be within 10 miles of nuclear weapons. And he could, acting as either Speaker of the House or the future of the Republican Party or just Paul Ryan, say, I'm sorry, like, no, <laughs> like I'm not going to do that and the chips will fall where they may. And Donald Trump would probably lose and maybe that would hurt his future runs or maybe he would look like a prophetic figure. I mean he's taking a lot of damage doing this too, right? It's not like this is a costless political strategy. I don't disagree with you in the sense of like if I were Paul Ryan's political consultant, I might recommend this exact course of action to him. But he could do something else and you can tell the degree to which Paul Ryan – in a way that is not true for Donald Trump, Paul Ryan feeds off of elite respect. Like it is really important to him. Like it is a big powering motivation to him that he is seen as this sincere, policy-oriented, um, sort of graceful figure on, on the political scene. It is causing him immense pain to be in this position where he is sort of endorsing and helping this lunatic. But I do think that when he explains to himself what is going on, and frankly, when he says a publicly, right? When people say to him, like, what are you doing? He will immediately say, well, look, we agree with Donald Trump on more than we agree with Hillary Clinton on. So I, I do think, like, to some degree, this is how Paul Ryan justifies it to himself. It isn't just that this is his best political move, because I think in some ways that's a little bit of an up-in-the-air question. I think it's that, you know, he tells himself, look, like, if this guy's in office, he fund he basically agrees with us on most things and we will control him. See, yeah, I actually I, think about it the opposite way. I think that if I were Paul Ryan's political advisor, I would be pointing to the damage he's taking and, and telling him to like take strong action one way or the other. Huh. Uh, and that Paul Ryan, like most politicians, thinks of the political incentives as baked in cement because people are generally risk averse. I mean, I think I thought that this was a tangent, but now I actually think this is a core issue here, which is whether Paul Ryan wants to be president. 
um, or whether what he wants to be is sort of almost a throwback figure in terms of the idea of a powerful legislator. And I th- I think he is much more likely to want to be the latter, in which case having a president who will rubber stamp what he wants to do is the number one most important priority in terms of his legacy, mm-hmm. rather than any damage that he might take for a hypothetical future campaign that he may or may not want to run. The way he thinks, the way his ambitions are laid out, the sort of career choices he have made seem to point, and I, I am not super plugged into the, you know, 2024 Republican network, so I may be very wrong on this, but seem to be someone who has, like, read all of the biographies of Lyndon Johnson in the Senate <laughs> and want to play that kind of role, um, which would also sort of fit with the conservative idea, at least when a Democrat is president, of what the powers of the presidency should be mm-hmm. and what the powers of Congress should be. And I think if you look at those as the incentives, this guy will sign the thing, starts to make his choices make more sense if you don't look at them as sort of saving his skin for needing to appeal to anyone outside of his district or at the very most outside of his state. But to pull this back to the the Trump tax plan a bit, one thing that I think is interesting about the place Donald Trump has ended up in is that he's actually combining now the worst elements of an outsider candidacy for the presidency with the worst elements of an insider candidacy for the presidency. So it's like the Trump pitch back when if you like rewind a year more Ooh. or less to a, a, a simpler, better that was, time. That was American everything politics, flashing right? before yeah. my eyes as I did um, that. Maybe, oh, I'm just going with the Hamilton reference. Rewind. <laughs> maybe maybe it's less than a year. There was some idea that maybe Donald Trump would be a really strong presidential contender. And the reason would be that he would be, on the one hand, an outsider untainted by the political system, right? Like untainted by campaign finance, untainted by uh, just like long service in Washington where he's taken a bunch of positions that he now regrets. And because of that, because he could fund a lot of his own campaign, because he wasn't tied to, to the conventional institutions, he actually wouldn't be hemmed in by a lot of the most unpopular dimensions of the traditional contemporary conservative policy agenda. It is the case that Paul Ryan's specific ideas are extremely unpopular. And one of the big reasons Democrats are able to stay afloat is that they are always able to run against Republicans wanting to cut – like put trillions of dollars on the deficit to cut taxes on the rich. Um, That is what Paul Ryan's budget does. Or he says it will be revenue neutral, which means it will be huge spending cuts to programs that help the poor. So either way, you're doing something people don't like to do something else people don't like. And what Trump – and there was a time when it looked like Trump was going to do this. He talked about having a health care plan that would cover everybody and the government would pay for it. He talked about raising taxes on the rich, including himself. Um, He talked about not cutting Social Security and Medicare. It's clear that he eventually got a very, very amateurish policy shop staffed by pretty conventional conservative policy thinkers and ended up with kind of bootleg, stripped down versions of conventional conservative policy. So what Trump has now is a candidacy where he's an outsider. He clearly has no political experience. And because of the way he's wearing that, he's sort of reminding people what they like about vetted, accomplished, <laughs> you know, tested politicians. Like you may you may not love them, but you feel confident that they're not going to accidentally nuke anyone. And at the same time, he's now running on the Mitt Romney plan, mm-hmm. um, which was Mitt Romney's vulnerability was not Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was like a accomplished, appealing guy. His vulnerability was his policy ideas, like which, you know, the Democrats just hammered him on because cutting taxes on the rich and, and putting that on the deficit or cutting program support is not popular. And now that's Trump's idea, too. So he really is not showing any interest in using the freedom that his background gives him to mount a stronger, more unusually interesting candidacy. Yeah, and I think this plays right into another point, another part of the case he makes for himself and sort of puts lie to it, which is this idea of hiring the best people. Um, oh, yeah. And you could sort of, because you could see, you could imagine from that platform hiring really interesting thinkers or people who are not necessarily in favor with the powers that be within the, the institutional establishment party, but have interesting ideas, whether that's from the libertarian side, from the reform conservative side, strange ideas nobody's thought of until now because they're not even getting play at think tanks. Like you could imagine a process where an outsider candidacy would really introduce some some interesting ideas into the bloodstream, even if it ended up 
eventually being sort of towed toward the establishment. And instead, what it's illustrated is the lack of patience he has for anything in an outsider campaign other than the personality of himself as an outsider. And what, what Todd Vanderwerf sort of talks about him as a reverse Sorkin hero um, and of the guy who comes in and tells it like it is mm-hmm. and like plays that sort of movie role, but does not have the people behind the scenes who sort of make it possible for for that for them to mount a substantive argument. Libby, you and I know because we've both read um, some of his books. And Ezra, I know you've read Art, Art of the Deal, at least, that, you know, Trump in his books, we'll talk about hiring the best people and then say, but don't trust him. And if you actually read a Trump book, it becomes very clear that he is a terrible micromanager, <laughs> um, that anything that interests him becomes his full time job, that if he decides that one hole on the golf course really needs to be special, he will do everything in the putting together of that hole. And, you know, as someone who's you know, been managed, I understand that you can't do that and have the best people, that anyone who will let you do that is someone who is not actually going to be competent and imaginative when you're not in the room. I think that's a good place to to, to shift gears here and talk a little bit about something Trump has begun doing um, that's been pretty interesting, and that's questioning in advance the legitimacy of the results in November. Um, and Dara, you've done the most work on this. So, mm-hmm. so do you want to give the overview here? Yeah. So I think that there's there's a certain response among people who are already strongly opposed to Donald Trump to assume that he is that he is very consciously stoking this right wing populist anger, that he is setting himself up to be a right wing populist hero, not just now, but after he, as it is likely right now, that he will do lose the election. And one of the most compelling arguments for that is that he's now started saying as part of his stump speech that the election is part of the rigged system that everything else is that, you know, either he'll specifically talk about voter ID and voter fraud and people voting 10 or 15 times for Hillary Clinton, uh, which is interesting to see him become aware of this after recent court decisions that have struck down some of the voter ID and voting restrictions in states like North Carolina and Texas and Wisconsin. Um, that, you know, Donald Trump may have become aware that this was an issue because people were talking about it on cable news, which is typically how Donald Trump gets his information. But even when he's not saying that specifically, he'll say, you know, the election might be rigged. I don't know. We'll see. People are saying. Right. People are saying that it's, it's all going to be rigged. And this is worrisome and it's not worrisome for the reason that people think. I think that it is very easy to look at that and go, Trump is deliberately stoking You know, he's setting himself up to, in November, officially challenge the results of the election, to encourage his followers to riot in the streets. And, like, he will then become this big right-wing populist avatar, and that will be his next phase. I don't think that that's true. I think that that imputes a lot of intentionality to Donald Trump that, given everything we've been saying in this podcast, uh, you know, is not fair to impute. I think Trump doesn't really understand what he's doing. I don't think it's any less dangerous for that reason, but I think that there's a, a people who have been who have seen things like saying the election is rigged or Trump quote unquote joking that Second Amendment people might have a way to stop Hillary Clinton or her judges. Think of him as the centerpiece of this movement, and he's not at all. He is tapping into something that is much deeper and much more powerful than I think even he understands. And under, to understand the nature of why. It is so threatening to talk about the election being rigged. It's necessary not to talk about Trump himself, but to think about, okay, who are these people who are going to listen to that and really respond to it? And the sad fact of the matter is that even in 2012, when there wasn't a, you know, when when Mitt Romney was not going around talking about the election being rigged, a solid, you know, 40 percent of people in both parties thought that if their candidate didn't win the election, it would be because the election was rigged. There is a lot of fear in, you know, Republican and conservative circles about Democrats winning elections through voter fraud. And that's why they need to pass voter ID laws. This these are pre-existing ideas that if Trump, you know, if Trump loses, having opened the door for those people will be you know, kind of activated in that belief, whether or not Donald Trump is out there formally challenging the result in court. And that's, I think, what we need to worry about. But Trump is, I mean, I agree with you. I don't think Trump is going to, if he loses the election, like remain on the scene as a sort of populist hero. But he is getting people ready to feel this way. Uh, I saw a poll out in North Carolina the other day that said a majority of Republicans already think that if in, in in North Carolina, that if the election is lost by Trump, it'll be because it was rigged against him. 
Yeah. And most of the time when I see results like that, I go, oh, well, if you ask people who support Donald Trump, you know, if they agree with an idea that Donald Trump expresses, of course, they'll say yes. But that's exactly what Trump himself is doing. He's priming this idea as being contingent on supporting him. And the thing that I just want to point out here, and it goes a little bit beyond Trump. I mean, I think you saw it with some of what and, and Bernie Sanders, I think, towards the end, like really fought against this. But there was talk, particularly around the New York primary, I believe we actually talked about this on the show, where, you know, Sanders is really trying to put forward the idea that the pre-existing rules of the Democratic primary had amounted to a rigging. Um, you know, certainly the DNC email leaks, which I don't think ended up showing uh, that like actual plots were carried out against Sanders, but I think definitely showed that top Democratic National Committee officials were more pro-Hillary, which preferred Hillary Clinton to win. Shocking, shocking news. Something that I think we knew. Yeah. Um, But but, you know, but nevertheless, it's something that's reasonable for people to be upset about. Uh, I think that there's been a unusual frequency and intensity of challenges to outcomes of the 2016 elections, right? The Mm -hmm. outcomes of the primaries. And then we're seeing potentially the outcome of the general. And that strikes at a very deep place in our democracy. I mean, I I don't just want to talk about it as a thing that is like it would be bad if Donald Trump said this or it's not true. I mean, it isn't true. But I don't know. We are in a place as a country where we are really losing bonds of trust. Um, For a long time, trust in major institutions has been going way down. For a long time, belief that the other side is a threat to the country, that they will do anything to win has been going up. And it, you know, once you take out people's basic faith that the system is delivering fair results, even if they're results they don't like, you take out something pretty core. Um, I, I think it's really easy to forget that great political systems, great stable political systems are actually rare and they are not protected by accident. They are protected by both rules and norms where members of both or all political parties understand that the importance of protecting the system and the stability of the system to some degree transcends our individual interests, something you very much saw from Al Gore in 2000, um, who I think, you know, very arguably gave up prematurely, but nevertheless gave up as a, you know, because he believed that the system transcended his own interests. And I think you're seeing a real diminishment of that among top politicians and at a moment when their supporters are really, really primed and ready to believe that that they shouldn't just they, they shouldn't say, OK, we lost. I think that it's really easy to think of this over in an overly abstract way. And I think that especially, you know, after years of the Senate, which is arguably the most norm governed body in American politics, kind of eroding many of the norms by which it operates, it's very easy to say, yes, well, the norms are already going away. So to look at this a little more concretely, and Ezra, I think that talking about the way that Bernie Sanders versus some of his followers have responded to the outcome of the primary is very instructive here. I was in the room in Philly when Hillary Clinton accepted the Democratic nomination. And there were, although not to the extent that there were on, say, Monday night, there were a core of protesters who were, you know, throughout her speech, um, interrupting and booing and not, you know, in some cases for particularly calling for particular policies, but really, you know, not particularly responsive to what she was saying, just there to challenge her and shout her down. And that's something that having seen a lot of the left activist pressure on the Obama administration was very alien to me, because with the exception of Code Pink, which does a lot of shouting and doesn't have exact results that they can point to as victories, most of the left pressure on Obama has been very focused. You you know, you will interrupt a speech, but you'll interrupt a speech once and then you'll have made your point and you'll leave the room. And you understand that that is a tool in your toolbox, that it's not because you don't think Obama is a legitimate president. It's because you think that this is a useful way to communicate with the White House and move them leftward and get what you want, because you understand that that will be in that, you know, they are, if not rational actors, they're at least legitimate actors within the system. And if they, you know, if they move to the left, that will be a victory for you. If you're Booing someone because you don't believe them to be legitimate. You don't trust anything they say. And if you don't trust anything they say, you have no incentive to work with them. You have no incentive to pressure them in your direction. And while for left-wing activists, the response to that might be to boo someone down as they you know, would try to do for Hillary Clinton or as they successfully or preemptively did for Donald Trump in Chicago, for conservative and right-wing activists, that looks a lot like you know, not trusting them, especially on guns, because – If you believe that the Second Amendment is the 
amendment that guarantees the rights of all the other ones, then you have every reason to believe that an illegitimate ruler is going to go for guns first. So I think this idea of legitimacy is really important. And I think it's something because one thing I've been thinking about is that Trump is sort of it is unusual for the party the nominee de facto party leader for the moment to be at the very extreme end of this in terms of the comments he's making. But if Hillary Clinton wins in November, as she appears likely to, if she wins with a significant majority, as she appears likely to, one of the questions I've been sort of turning over in my mind is what kind of mandate is she going to have? Because it's such an unusual election. And I think there will be a huge interest, even among people who maybe are secretly happy that Donald Trump did not win the presidency, to in some ways begin to undercut the legitimacy, at least of her majority, if not of her presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a trend that may be less concerning in many ways in the way that they express it, but that this is sort of – this is going to mushroom out and not inward in terms of the amount that we sort of hear this rhetoric and hear this idea that like, oh, well, she didn't really win. She doesn't have a landslide in the sense – or a a mandate in the sense that Obama did in 2008. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, Trump is certainly on kind of the edge of this, but that I think there is an institutional interest within the party, um, especially as she becomes likely to win, not to say that the election was rigged. But to say that because of the unusual circumstances of this year, because of how we know the rhetoric went down, like she has the rhetoric to be a calm, centrist president who doesn't nuke anybody, you know. And I I think that – but I think those lines can get blurred really easily. This happened to her husband too. Right, right. And, you know, the the idea was – Bill Clinton didn't win a majority of the vote in either of his Right. I was going to say, I feel like this is actually fairly different. And and the idea was that – you know, that he didn't have a, a mandate to govern, you know, mm-hmm. as as a Democrat, he, you know, had a mandate to govern sort of as a pro-ish, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, at times even did. <laughs> and I think with Clinton, the, the only thing I would add on to that, though, is that I'm not sure mandates are a real thing anymore. I think That's that a fair point. they have not operated in a real way for some time in this sort of highly polarized period in American politics. Yeah. So like you talked about Barack Obama in 2008. There might have been a belief that he won, mm-hmm. but it's not like Republicans said, OK, you won. Like you you get something here. Like the stimulus, they, you know, cheered on the floor of the House after mm-hmm. Republicans didn't give it a single vote. I mean, that was a policy put forward immediately during a national economic emergency. Like if a mandate was ever going to be operative, it was going to be at that moment for that kind of policy. And, and it went nowhere. And I think that, you know, to your point, after the election, assuming Republicans lose, the operative priority for them is going to be uniting their party. Yeah. And the way to unite their party is going to be unite it against Hillary Clinton. And I think, you know, I know that the Clinton campaign, like their ideas, like they will come in and the thing they'll try to do is work with Republicans on a deal that brings together infrastructure spending, job spending, and some kind of tax reform, possibly. My sort of reading between the lines, I think you can look at corporate tax repatriation as a big player in this. Uh, and, you know, that they're just really going to try to put together a package that can be bipartisan and they're going to take everything they know about American politics and everything they think Obama did wrong and everything that is true about Hillary Clinton's like political style and and put it into getting this big bipartisan package. And my guess is they probably won't get the package. I don't know that it's going to be in Paul Ryan's incentive to question legitimacy because he didn't want Donald Trump to win either. <laughs> but I think that it will certainly be in their uh, interest to unite against her and deny her any kind of mandate. And, you know, and I think fair enough, like, I don't I don't know that there I don't know the concept of mandates makes a ton of sense. I do think that there is some awareness in Clinton land that they're aware of this tension right at the same time that they're trying to mobilize Republicans and independents against Trump. Uh, Hillary Clinton's nomination speech, you know, was totally centrist, but substantively very progressive. And while they're talking about this infrastructure package that would be politically, as you said, identical to the stimulus, they're also talking about getting immigration reform done in the first hundred days, which has become a core progressive policy. And while there is some interest in the Republican Party in getting it done on a policy level, the things that are most important to the Hillary Clinton campaign and to Democrats are not at all the things most important to Republicans on immigration. So I think it's going to be extremely interesting to see not only after she wins the election, should she win the election, but in the next few months, how the Clinton campaign tries to straddle encouraging this, what I think of as an immunological response to Trump, right? Like Trump is hostile to the system and therefore the system has to unite to throw him out versus the substantive policy agenda that they're pushing, which is a remnant of this unity fight they had within the party and trying to get the left dissenters on board. Let's move to our white paper of the week. 
Um, Libby, you suggested it, so do you want to give a give a summary of it? Yeah, I can. I can do what I can here. Um, this is this was one where I was reading through the NBER papers, and this one just uh, jumped out at me. Twice, once because of the author who is the, my, the man of Freakonomics fame, Stephen Lovett. And the other, the, the entire concept is so different than what you usually see in the, like, evaluation of a long-term set of healthcare outcomes versus, right. you know, this was um, – <laughs> the idea behind this white paper is it's about decision-making. And it looks at sort of the classic idea of if you don't know what to do, you should just flip a coin. Um, and so the Freakonomics uh, guys set up a website where you could – Go to it if you were if you had a decision you needed to make. You could flip a coin on the website. You could fill out a form. You said what you know what issue you were you were trying to resolve, and they followed up with them two and six months later about whether they did what the coin t- told them to do and how they felt about it. They found particularly for the major decisions, quitting your job, breaking up with someone, um, moving, I think was one of them. The, the list of decisions that people ask about is hilarious, and we can get to that a little bit later. But they found that at two months, there was no major difference in happiness between the people who followed the coin flip and people who did not. And they found that at six months, the people who had made a change were significantly happier than the people who had not. Um, so that's sort of the the, the basics of the paper, of which the takeaway seems to be that flipping a coin or just making a change is a fine way to deal with having to make a decision. Right. So I, t- I took two things away from it. So one, it's worth saying a lot of the people did not follow the coin flip. Yes. Many, um, it was about 64% yeah. did the thing, which means that it was not a huge number. So Especially the, for the important decisions, right? For right. The, so the important decisions are – there was – I think it was like a 56% or yeah. something. So it was it was the – the group that got influenced by the coin was significant statistically, but not huge by any means. <laughs> not the way you know, that normal people think about the word significant. We're also looking at um, a group of people who are probably different. The kinds of people who go to the Freakonomics website, then agree to participate in this weird experiment and then fill out a long questionnaire. I mean, the ways in which that treatment group differs from normal people is very high. A lot of them were from Reddit, for what it's worth. There you go. People who are on Reddit (laughs) differ a lot from normal people. I think that is a a fair thing to say. But what I really like about this study, because I can like sit around and poke methodological holes in it all day. But this is something that Leva kind of says in the paper, which is one of the problems in economics uh, and in all disciplines is it is really hard to study the things you truly want to study. You end up studying very small things where you get really good data. But I think one of the things that we would really like to know in life is should we be more biased towards if we're already thinking about a big decision, right? If we're, if we're on the precipice of it, if we're in a place where we might even think about flipping a coin to make it, does that imply that because of our natural status quo bias, we actually the case for making the decision is overwhelming. And that's what they're trying to to show here. And I am certainly, while not again totally convinced by the experiment, I'm intuitively um pretty sympathetic to the idea, which I think is what Levitt takes from this, which is if you've gotten to the point where you would think about flipping a coin, you are probably past the point when you should have made this decision. Yeah, I think that actually in some ways the biases of this paper are as informative as the idea of the paper itself, because I have a great job that I love. I have a good relationship that I love. Like I am not – if someone was like, hey, flip a coin and if, if the coin goes the other way, you have to, to leave this thing, I'd be like, no, you're insane. Right. You know, if <laughs> if you're already at the point where you are so torn about it that this is – this seems like the best way to make a big life decision, like make the decision. And if that's – if that's – you know, that doesn't tell us anything about the utility of a coin flip, but it, it does about sort of the, the circumstances that take someone – to fill out this form, go to this website, pursue this path. Yeah, and this is why, Ezra, I actually think that you're, uh, you, you've solved your own problem pretty easily. <laughs> because good. the sort of people who think <laughs> that it is important to know generally, oh, am I likely to be biased toward the status quo, are exactly the sort of people who would be open to the data of this paper and, and who would be likely to say, well, maybe I should go on this website and flip this virtual coin and see how that affects my decision-making process. I think that it's definitely true that not everyone who is struggling with a difficult decision and who maybe should, for their happiness, make the decision is likely to be that kind of person. But what I wonder about is who are the people who are really on the margin and struggling with decisions who aren't going to be open to this. It does seem like I am not as invested in fixing my own cognitive biases as I think some people at this table. Um, But I can certainly imagine a world where I'm using a coin flip as kind of a script that I can follow, a a justification for making a decision that I otherwise wouldn't be comfortable making. And I wonder if that's true of the other people who are really – who maybe – 
are letting their status quo bias blind them, or, or if there's a different intervention, if you really want to fix the status oh, quo bias problem beyond just telling people that they have one. There was an interesting finding in this paper around the big decisions. And I want to relay correctly. So if, if I'm getting this wrong, please tell me. But around the major decisions, they found that at the two-month mark, most people had not followed the coin flip. But at the six-month mark, they had. Um, and it's not the coin flip. It's like they hadn't made the decision yes. and by mm-hmm. six months they had. Yeah. And what that implied to me, and, and this is very much consonant with my own experience as a human being, is that once you've begun obsessing about a very big decision, you often know you're going to make it, even if you don't, you know, not willing to admit that to yourself, for a long time before you finally make it. And what what I thought was like the most interesting part of the paper and the most applicable to life is trying to cut that lag time, right? Trying to not make your decisions six months later than you already should have made them. Like I can think of a lot of major decisions in my life that I was struggling with for a long time. And the period between when I kind of knew this decision had to get made and when I actually made it was quite long. And that meant I lost that time in sort of reaping the benefits of the decision. And I, you definitely saw that reflected a little bit in the data here. And, you know, again, if I were trying to pull out uh, lessons for myself here, you know, I think the idea of if you kind of know you need to quit your job, like quit your job. Like if you kind of know this relationship isn't going to work out and but you're in this place of like waiting for exactly the right time and, you know, just like take the hard pill. Because probably as a human being, you have a tendency to just wait too long and draw it out and you'll be happier not doing that. If you kind of know that Donald Trump is going to continue to say things that you as a Republican elected official are going to be unable to <laughs> that, that, is a, so that is a solid bow. Right I have there. a big dumb question about yeah. this study, though. What is the economic utility of knowing this information in terms of – I mean, I, I understand, like, I guess why people change jobs. This is an interesting question because I'm uh-huh. interested in how human beings are and work. I'm interested in, A, like, why economics is the – frame for this this argument, um, which seems like fine, but also like I would bet psychologists would have a lot to say about this as well. And also like what, you know, is this something we're just curious about as a species of how other people think or is there a, a like really obvious greater good economic angle to this that I'm missing? I would argue that you are focusing on the wrong actor, that there is not, I think, a very high economic utility in you and me knowing about this, but that Stephen Levitt enjoys being famous. That's kind of what and I enjoys getting paid a lot of money to give speeches. I'm not saying any of this is bad. I no. enjoy the fact that Stephen <laughs> Levitt is famous. I profit from his work. I enjoy reading it. I'm enjoying talking about this paper. But I think that if you ask like the question of like, did this paper need to be written? Like, did it really tell us anything? I'm not sure that it did. But I think it very much um, uh, accorded with Stephen Levitt's life goals and like the utility that he is deriving from writing a paper that everybody is talking about for a little while and it reminds people that this guy does these fun, weird experiments um, is probably pretty significant. That's true. And <laughs> I, it, it, I think it, it does confirm I our mean, biases. I mean, people like to be told that there is data that backs up what we all – if right. you if right. you had like instinctively – I have told people to flip a coin to make decisions before, by the way, because I've said that like – I can't remember if I've done it. But like the emotional reaction that you have to the answer that you were told is in itself really informative. Um, I think I've done it with like moving or something and it's like, oh, like I don't really don't want to move even if this coin tells me I have to move Uh and now I know. Okay, cool. So, you know, this this told us what we already know, but people love economic academic studies that tell them what they already know. Right. I mean, I think the real question here is not did this paper need to be written, but did this paper need to be written by an economist? (laughs) And with all credit to Stephen Levitt, um, as someone who often – comes to economics papers with that question, he does a solid job of showing his work not only in economics but in psychology on, you know, what we know about self-reported happiness and that kind of thing. Um, but I do think that if you take away one question from this study, it should absolutely be, you know, is economics necessarily the right frame for this? And if it isn't, you know, to what extent is the economist bringing economics as, you know, the way to study how people make decisions into the paper rather than just kind of using having an economics degree in a famous platform as an excuse to explore a fun question? I would submit, and I don't know this for sure, but that an economist not named Stephen Levitt could not have gotten this paper published by NBER. 
I do not think this paper is remotely as solid as the research NBR typically publishes. I think I, would, I, would I think Levin does a very yeah. good job in this paper of explaining all the reasons that you shouldn't believe the paper. <laughs> I, I think he's very upfront about the methodological flaws. But I have never seen a paper published by NBR that is like so obviously something you actually shouldn't believe. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I think that the reason it happened is because it's of it. So I, I would suggest that I wouldn't really pin this one on economics. I would pin this one on Freakonomics. Yeah, I probably think it hear from economists who are angry a, that we, we lumped him in with all of them. Right. I think I think it operates uh, uh, um, with rules unto itself. But the other thing I do think is that I think if you abstract out and you ask, mm-hmm. like, what is this paper really talking to you about? It mm-hmm. is something that is very well studied, which is risk aversion mm-hmm. or loss aversion. Like this paper is saying that people are too risk averse, too loss averse. And if you can find a device that will help get you over the hump, you will be happier. Um, again, I'm not sure that is proven in this paper, but I think that it is definitely something that we see in other areas of behavioral economics that like people make a lot of bad decisions for themselves, decisions that long-term don't pay off. Like we know both the people are too risk averse in making decisions and the people are much better than they think they are at acclimating to new circumstances. And um, and this paper is a fun way of maybe dramatizing uh, what is, I think, a much more solidly grounded body of research. And it's a fun question, right? I mean, it's it, it, it's way more fun to talk about things that, like, all humans relate to than it is to look at this narrow set of longitudinal data from totally. one city at one point in time. Right. And, you know, I don't know fun, fun is a utility value that <laughs> I am fine with having in the world. There is generally a uh, benefit to asking questions that affect society beyond, you know, the, beyond the scope of what government can reach. And I think that, you know, looking at things like this where there are lots of decisions that individuals make that are – wholly outside the realm of what government can address, but where having more information is useful. It might be a useful reminder to those of us who tend to think about collective life as funneled wholly through politics and policy that like what's going to change people's lives in 2016 will in part be the election in November, but it's also going to be a lot of other things. Um, which is why we are so happy that every week you make the decision to give up some of your precious time and hang out with us on the weeds. Thank you to Libyan Dar for being here today. To our producer, Afim Shapiro, uh, The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production. We'll be back next week with lots of policy and hopefully a less sore jaw. <laughs> <laughs>